I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 14th chapter, the Gospel according to John, John chapter 14. And I want to read in your hearing the words of verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's ask God's blessing upon our consideration of these words this morning. Father, we ask your presence once again as you come, as we'd ask you to come and, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear your words. And Lord, give us grace to implement the instruction of your word. We live in a chaotic world, a world filled with conflict and division. The very call of our Lord Jesus to receive his peace is a remarkable contrast to so much of what we see all around us in the world today. So help us to hear the voice of our Lord. Help us to receive his peace, to be knowers of the peace that passes all understanding that would fill our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we ask these things in his name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes in the 8th chapter of his letter to the Romans, in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's probably one of the most often quoted, at least in some version of it. Sometimes those who love God is left out and people just say, we know that uh, all things work together for good. They just think karma is going to lead all things to work together for good in some way. And they leave God out of the equation. Uh, others leave out the latter part, the next part that well, I didn't read. Uh, those who are called according to his purpose, and those who are conformed to the image of his son. I mean, that enters into the picture also in the context of those words. Um, we have the idea that even for those that love God and are called according to his purpose and are being conformed to the image of his, uh, image of his son, that those uh, that for us all things work together for good is something that we we we, we recite, we say that we believe. And yet, sometimes it just doesn't seem to be the, be the case. Um, while saying with our lips, all things work together for the good, uh, many times the heart is saying something different. It's really quoting Jacob's words in the book of Genesis, where Jacob said, all these things are against me. As you look at your life, as you think of your sojourn at this point in your life, you are more likely to say within your heart, all things work together for the good. Thank you, Lord. Or more prone to say in your heart, all these things are against me. And think of the concrete things that constitute your life. The all things that include your marriage, that include the aggravations that sometimes you get from children and grandchildren, the aggravations you get on your job, the aggravations you have with the economy, with the rising prices in the store, and the horrible way in which we have to put so much money into our gas tanks. I got a little bit of consolation on that point when 
My brother-in-law told me that up in Canada they're paying five times what we're paying. I shouldn't take consolation in other people's misery, I guess, but we tend to, at least. But we we carp and, and we complain and we think things are tar- horrific. And in some case, ways they are. Rising crime, uh, troubles with the environment, things with race relations, things with... Um, all things national, international, local, personal, the way you have relations in your family, with your work associates, with things personal, um, with things present, with things past, with things in the future. And i got to remember, I I broke the uh, mouse on my computer and I'm pressing this thing to move my (laughs) prompter along and it's just not working. But that's why I had to put this thing on uh, this morning in order to get it to work. So I got to remember that's that's the go-to place, not here. So if you see me going here, you know, throw something my way, say, Pastor, you're looking at the wrong place. Anyway, if you're listening to this on tape, it's not going to mean anything to you. But uh, anyway, um, what do you say about those things? Is part of the all things that work together for the good, or part of the all things that you think are against me? If there's any group of people that have ever existed in the world who could with some justice thought that um, all the things in their lives at this particular point were against them, it was the disciples of Jesus in the upper room on the night of his betrayal. Think of these people. They had left their homes. They left their fishing nets. They left their families uh, to be traveling preachers to follow this itinerant miracle worker and a teacher and preacher um, and what have they gotten out of all of it in the end well they had the hatred of the religious leaders of the people they had the fear of persecution they met them on every hand they perhaps could think of all the fish they could have sold and the money they could have made in their fishing business and there's probably a loss of income being dependent upon women who came and ministered to them um, perhaps they thought of the loss of the comforts of being back home, being with their family loss of respect that maybe they had uh, had with their neighbors and with their friends um, perhaps suspicions of um, uh, uh, people who held them in suspicion people who shook their heads at these disciples of Jesus and wondered about this band of impoverished men going about from town to town um, in the cause of uh, this one whom the religious leaders didn't believe in. The one that they had denounced as a false teacher. The one that many had even said was, de- was demon-possessed and cast out demons by Beelzebub. And now this very teacher whom they had sacrificed so much for, think about it, they sacrificed so much for Jesus, and they had so much hope in him. And now he announces, as I said to the Jews, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you cannot come. You would be tempted to think, oh boy, all these things are surely against us. But Jesus' farewell discourse is really designed to counter those kinds of fears, to quell uh, suspicions that may have been in the minds of these people, to, of these disciples, to lay to rest um, any thought that all these things are against me is in any way a sufficient uh, biblical position when you have available to you the idea that all things work together for the good. Jesus is going away. Yes. 
But look at what he's doing. He's going away to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. To gain access to the very presence of the living God. His going away will bring the Holy Spirit to come to them. And in the coming of the Spirit, you know what? Jesus will come to them. I will come to you, he says, as the Spirit comes to glorify me. As the Spirit comes to bear witness of me and to take the things of me and reveal them to you. The Father will come to you. You will not be left as orphans. The Spirit would come to be their teacher, their helper, to lead them into the truth, all the things they needed to know to fulfill their mission as the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as if that was not sufficient to quell the anxieties of a troubled heart, Jesus now adds to the list of benefits that his going away would bring to them one final consideration. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And Jesus takes up the note at the very beginning of this farewell discourse when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. He, he repeats that. But he also adds to it this notion of a legacy of peace that he's giving to them, that he's leaving with them. A peace that would be given to them, likely by the Holy Spirit who would be given to them. Again, peace was something that Jesus said to them both times in the post-resurrection appearance because peace, or as the Hebrew shalom, was the usual term for greeting and is also the term for departing. I think I've told you there was no Broadway show that was called Milk and Honey about the settling of the land of Israel and the only memorable song that came from it that I'm aware of was a song called Shalom. And its words were, Shalom, Shalom, you'll find Shalom, the nicest greeting on earth. It means bonjour, salute, and more, and twice as much as hello. It brings a million lovely things, like peace be yours, welcome home. And even when you say goodbye, you say goodbye with Shalom, an all-purpose word, for all kinds of good things that will come to you. And Jesus used that expression with his disciples, but yet he instills it with a much greater understanding and significance because this is a peace that's not what the world gives this is not the ordinary peace that people claim to in their greetings and in their in, in their partings and in their welcoming of people home uh, declaring peace be to you uh, this was something that only can be done by his going away only be done by his going to the cross his dying for the sins of his people only then would they have a firm basis and foundation for peace. And only in the giving of the Spirit would the people of God have genuine peace. This peace is certainly one of the fruits of the Spirit, as the Apostle tells us in the Galatian letter. Well, our text this morning is this word of Jesus, this word of legacy, of giving to his people peace, not a peace such as the world gives. And when we look at it this morning, I'm simply going to look at uh, the contrast between the peace of the world, on the one hand, and then the peace of Christ on the other, and then uh, give something of the marks of this peace as we conclude uh, this morning. So let's begin and look at these matters 
before us. First of all, the peace of the world. Jesus makes it clear that the peace that he gives to his people is not the peace that the world places on offer. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. I don't think it's just the manner in which the world gives peace. Uh, maybe they thinking they give peace with their words. I'm going to give you peace in true reality. That might be something in our Lord's words. But the very peace itself, when you think about it, when people think of peace, what do they think of? Well, peace for the Romans, I'm sorry, for the Greeks, uh, the, Hebrew, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, Iran, um, um, I know it's the word Irene, but I want to say Irenaeus for some reason, and that's wrong. As an early church father that designated his name as the name of peace or peaceableness. Um, but the peace is, is, we also get the name Irene from the Greek word uh, Irene. And uh, that peace usually meant the absence of conflict, where conflicts would come to an end. You have two warring parties. You have a husband that's warring against his wife. They seem to be operating uh, poles apart on different realities. And all they do is they throw charges and barbs at one another and accuse one another. And there's simply constant warfare going on in a home, constant warfare going on in a, a synagogue, constant warfare going on in a, in a city, constant warfare going on in a nation, all through the world. Uh, the world um, has its conflicts. And the idea of peace for the Greek would be somebody to come along and quell the conflict. And usually it would be the heavy-handed person. It would be, it would be Julius Caesar, the guy that killed a million Gauls and made another million slaves. Now he would come and he would bring the peace. How would he do it? Enforce it. Enforce it with the harsh and heavy hand of dominion brought about by steel and sword and chariots and armies. That's what gives way to dictators, folks. It's our idea that peace at any cost is a worth, worthwhile trade. So let's, uh, let's get... Uh, uh, one guy who's running for office said recently, what, the, what we need now is a Hitler to come along. Oh my, what are people thinking? What are people saying? It's just astounding to me that uh, you know, that's the world's peace. But that's not the peace of Christ. That's not the peace that Jesus gives. But the other part of the peace of the world is not only that it's uh, something that's heavy-handed, it's something that's enforced uh, by uh, martial uh, uh, arts and uh, uh, heavy-handed military dictatorships, um, but it's also a peace that's in self-interest. Uh, people want peace because they don't want to be bothered. They don't want to be troubled. They're, they're consumed with themselves. And peace is a good policy, um, but not a settled principle. Is that something in what in the heart that you know conflict is bad, peace is something we should be striving after? Because in the heart, people war. James says, "When where do wars and fightings come among you? It does not come from desires within your members. You got these desires that are unfulfilled, and you're unhappy." until you get it and you want dominance and prominence and your way and you don't care who you walk over in order to obtain it but you know you can arrive at peace um, when you feel it's your interests that are at hand uh, maybe you don't have the resources to fight on maybe you're just attempting a temporary truce until it's you know we say it's uh, you, know, you can always fight another day maybe you want to come back and fight another day 
And so much of the world's peace is mere calculation. It's not commitment. It's not principle. It's just simply a policy. But then the, the peace of the world is a temporary peace. It's never permanent. It's never abiding. It could end in a moment's notice. Again, because it's determined by self-interest, um, you can find self-interest uh, demands you do something different. Maybe a war is in your best self-interest. Think of an abusive husband. He'll talk in terms of peace when the wife leaves, finds her way to a safe house somewhere, and uh, he's not having her under his control. And that's when the pastor gets a phone call. Pastor, my wife left me. Maybe she went to some safe house or somebody in the church is keeping her at their house and I don't have access to her. I need help to get her back. Suddenly the pastor's brought into the situation. And the pastor has to understand he can't be used by that abusive husband just to get her back. He has to repent of the sins that made her leave. You want reconciliation that's true and genuine. You want righteousness that's usually the prelude to peaceableness. You can't be peaceable in the midst of a war that a husband is waging against his wife with abusive words, emotional devastation, sexual abuse, and all the rest that he can dish out on her. It cannot be. You just look to patch it up. You've got to get to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of rebellion and unrighteousness and sin. But the man's all for peace. So he can get her back. Get her back under his control. Make life miserable for her once again. A nation can talk about peace when it's unable to gain a military advantage. So you have a truce. You have a peace. Remember Neville Chamberlain coming back from Vienna, I think it was? Peace in our time, he declared. He gave some concessions to Hitler. And Czechoslovakia might have been sacrificed, but hey, peace in our time. No such thing occurred. Anyone who knows their history. Poland was next, and all of Europe was next. He was not going to be satisfied with just a concession or two. But he could talk peace. He enormous this with Russia until it was no longer advantageous, and then he attacked Russia invaded Russia. It's a piece of the world, folks. It's policy. Not principle. It's convenience, not commitment. It's temporary, not permanent. It may be a cessation of conflict, but it's not abundance. And that's the Hebrew idea, by the way. The Greeks thought of cessation of conflict is what peace meant. That's arene, but shalom. The Hebrew word meant abundance. It didn't just mean that the warfare ceased while the land was still devastated. Peace had not yet arrived until you had fruitful seasons once again. Until you had the fig tree, until you had the, har- the, the, the vineyard, until everything became green and not scorched earth, until everything became renewed. The Old Testament speaks about the righteous delighting themselves in the abundance of peace. Peace is abundance. Peace is prosperity. 
Peace is the blessing of God upon a people, upon a nation, upon a person. That's the New Testament idea of peace. And that's the peace Jesus says he's come to bring. That's the peace that's the legacy he's come to leave to his disciples. Not as the world gives. A temporary policy to be taken back at a moment's notice. His peace is radically different. Again, it's a peace that's not only not what the world gives, but no, you know what? The world can't give it. The world can't give the peace that Jesus gives. The world's incapable. Because it's a peace that comes from God. It's a peace that comes from above. It's the peace that's the fruit of the Spirit being poured out. The fruit of love, joy, and peace. It's a peace that belongs to a kingdom that only God can establish in the world. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a peace that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 32. And that messed up my Sunday school this morning. Because that Isaiah 32 in my mind enough. I couldn't remember the other passage in Isaiah I wanted to turn to. But tonight if you come, I'm going to give you that other passage in Isaiah that I meant to turn to and didn't. Because Isaiah 32 was in my brain. But uh, it's good now because we can now turn to Isaiah 32 and actually read something. Not just have you look at it, but I can read it to you. Isaiah chapter 32. In a passage describing the reign of the king who comes to reign in righteousness. That's in verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. The true king will come. The messianic king will come. The king who would sit upon David's throne. There's increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. This is a prophecy of his coming. Isaiah is seeing his, his, his arrival, his approach. And his approach will also involve judgment upon transgression and sin. And so that's mentioned as well in the passage. It speaks about the palace of the king forsaken in verse 14. Many other devastating circumstances that come into the city and into the nation because of sin. The populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower in 32.14 will become dens forever. The joy of wild donkeys and pastures of flocks. That's a devastation of the land that's been run over by war. And it's not habitable for human habitation. It's not The only thing that dwells there are wild animals now. And all this will exist, Isaiah says, until, until, something's coming, folks. Something wondrous, something awesomely magnificent is on the way. Until, he says, the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. There are things that await the pouring out of the Spirit from on high. The Spirit that comes from God. I will pray the Father and He will send you another Comforter, even the Spirit of Truth. It's God's gift. And then the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And that means there's density of trees of righteousness planted by the hand of the God who sends forth His Spirit from on high. What happens when that occurs? Well, then he says, justice will dwell in the wilderness, righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. Will be peace. 
You see, it's not a peace without righteousness. It's not a peace at any cost. It's a peace that honors the God of righteousness and the righteousness of God expressed in His holiness and in His holy laws. The effect of righteousness will be peace and the results of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. It's amazing to me how Jesus echoes, or probably not the right word, he just recapitulates these words of Isaiah. You hear the echoes of Isaiah in Jesus' words. It is the right word. You hear the echoes of Isaiah in perhaps in, in 32. Uh, Jesus speaking about the fruit bearing of his disciples. Um, Jesus speaking about the peace that he leaves his disciples. Jesus speaking about uh, quietness and trust. Let not your heart be troubled. Trust is really the idea of security. Neither be fearful. Um, Isaiah is speaking of these things that will happen. When? Well, when Jesus comes and gives his legacy to his church, imparts to us his peace, a peace that the world does not give and cannot give, but only he can give. And he gives through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. How different is the peace of God from that which the world gives? It's a peace that's from above. It's a peace from the Spirit. It's a peace that's the result of righteousness being obtained and brought in. It's not policy, but principle. It's not convenience, it's commitment. Jesus comes to go to the Father to do what? Well, to do what Daniel says, to bring in everlasting righteousness. God's a righteous God. And for him to be at peace with us, our sins must be pardoned. Our guilt must be removed. And Jesus comes and gives his life a ransom for many. Comes to give his life to be a sacrifice for our sins. He comes to represent us, to be a substitute for us, to take away our guilt. That the result would be, not just that we would be forgiven, but righteously forgiven. Because our iniquities are paid for. And then the righteousness of Christ is not only something he does for us, it's something he instills within us. He can't separate those two things. When Paul speaks of justification in the Roman letter, we saw it this morning, when he says, um, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a wondrous reality, that through the work of the cross, we are reconciled to God through the death of his Son. But you see, that ministry, that, that reconciliation we have, Paul argues in 2 Corinthians, gives him a ministry of reconciliation. He gets the reconciliation to do what? Say, great, i got reconciliation with God. I can go home a happy man and die a happy man. Well, Paul didn't do that. He says, I received this reconciliation from God that I might be a reconciler to others. He receives a ministry of reconciliation. He proclaims a message to rec- of reconciliation. He preaches a message to the Corinthians of reconciliation. And that's a church. But it's a church at odds with one another. It's a church that's filled with divisiveness and division. And Paul addresses that church and says, I, I beseech you, in behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Get your act together, people. 
called to a ministry of reconciliation. People shouldn't come into your midst and say, hey, this is a church at war. That's, just, that's unseemly. That's simply inconsistent with what the gospel is. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He comes to provide a kingdom of peace. He makes us to be a people of peace. The triumph of the work of the cross that brings righteousness in to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another through the blood of the cross as well. It's the work of the cross of Jesus. It's the work of the Spirit's indwelling that brings about the peaceable kingdom of God. No, what Isaiah tells us is that this peace is forever. You see it in the words of verse 17, the effect of righteousness will be peace, the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust. How long? Until different desires come in? No. Forever. It's peace forever. And for always. Something lasting. Not to be broken. Not to be violated by the will of man. Well, we see the peace the world gives. And we've seen the peace that Jesus gives. And I hope the contrast is stark. Just in conclusion, what are the marks of this peace? Well, the marks that Jesus gives seems to be what Isaiah gives. It's rest and security. The trouble-free heart and fearlessness. The heart is quelled from its anxieties and fears are removed. Where the peace of Christ is present and the peace of Christ reigns in a life, there'll be an increasing absence of the cares that often plague the hearts of people in a fallen world. We will increasingly come to see the world differently. We'll see the world in the wider perspective of God's will and of God's ways. That he rules in a kingdom that cannot be defeated. Even when defeat seems to be at hand. Even when we wonder, is the church viable? Is the church going to survive? Is truth going to continue in the world? Will there be faith when the Son of Man comes? Yet the reality is, God's victory is already secure. Paul says we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're not on the losing side. And the troubles of the mind that attend life in this world where we feel we're on the brink of calamity should not continue to afflict us. God's on his throne. Christ reigns. What could the world do to you? Put you to death. To send you to glory. To send you to the presence of your God and your King. Let not your heart be troubled. All these things are not against you. All these things are working together for your good. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. Again, a troubled heart usually focuses upon the problems of the present. 
A fearful heart is concerned about the future. What will the future bring? What will happen to my kids when they grow up? What will happen to my grandkids? And you're fearful for them in a fallen world. And yet even there, we have to be confident that God knows what he's doing in the world. He's, the, the words of the hymn often strike me. The fearful clouds you so much dread are rich in mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Again, these were disciples. They were fearful. They were troubled in mind about the present. They were fearful about the future. And all along, they had no real reason to be. They had no real reason to be. And we feel anxiety in our hearts and we feel fear in our hearts. The reality is, when we step back a bit and we look at things in the wider perspective, see the things through the eyes of Scripture, get these... You know, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting surgery in which they're going to plant lenses into my eyes and I'm going to see the world differently when that occurs I won't necessarily have to wear these at least not this prescription I won't have to wear but they're going to plant something in my eye that's going to make me see the world differently God's given us something to plant within our souls to plant within our spiritual vision in which we can see the world differently and that's his word Calvin called it the corrective lenses We're myopic. We don't see things clearly at all. Everything is confused. And God gives us his word to be the lenses out from which we should see the world. Let's get those lenses cemented within our souls, to be implanted within our hearts, that we might not be a people filled with present anxieties and future fears. We would hear the words of Jesus. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be fearful. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this word from our Lord, and we pray we would hear it and heed it, and we would know the joys of what it is to be a people at peace. At peace with you, at peace with others, even at peace with ourselves. Through the power of the gospel that renews all things, that changes all things, that brings in a new creation. Help us to see things through your word and not to look upon things through the myopic vision of our own understandings. We pray that you'd hear our prayers. We pray that you'd bless your people as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.